It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello, and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny. This is my show, and today we are back to the beginner's guide of professional wrestling, and we're looking at FMW in the post Atsushi Anita era. Uh, to join me today is a new guest to the True Penny Show. He's a colleague of mine from Steel Chair Wrestling Magazine. He's written a brilliant series on the history of FMW for Steel Chair Magazine, which I strongly recommend. And he is right now on my line from Skype. Will you please welcome Mr. John Dinsdale, death correspondent Hello. for Steel Chair Magazine, I believe. Is your official title, is it not? Uh, you seem to like calling me it, so I'm, I'm going to accept it, yeah. I am your editor, so therefore I'm saying you are. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but first of all, just quick introduction to yourself. What got you into wrestling in the first place, and why are you so deathmatch orientated? Well, um, there wasn't a lot of sort of videotapes for me to watch on wrestling when I was growing up. I sort of got a couple of hand-me-downs from sort of my uncle, and I'd watch them over and over again. And then the internet happened, and I <laughs> finally saw King of the Ring 1998, which just so happens to have... McFoley being thrown off a hell in a cell <laughs> and yeah since then I sort of tried to find more wrestling matches of that ilk and I ended up getting into no no rope exploding barbed wire cage death matches <laughs> and so I've just had a sort of curiosity about the sort of hardcore and deathmatch wrestling ever since that's reasonable I think that's fair enough um, well, in this particular part of the series, we're kind of looking at the history of FMW. We are in the post-Anita era. Uh, we're looking at a show that happened after the seventh anniversary show. Now, in this particular era of FMW, they were trying to grow their audience because Onita meant big audience. That was kind of their thing. And when Onita retired, all of a sudden there's this massive hole in their draw. And they're trying to do things differently. They're trying to look at things in a different way. So uh, they went the way of Wing, and they went back to Wally Yamaguchi and a few other people who were in Wing and said, hey, do you want to work together? Um, Victor Quinez and a bunch of other people who left because because we you didn't get on with Anita, and now here you are again. Would you like to come back to us? <laughs> Essentially, is what happened. And they were like, yeah, all right, uh, making more money. Fine, we're good with that. Uh, and so this series of Wing versus FMW about the very future of hardcore pro wrestling in Japan and how FMW was going to develop kind of happens in the late summer of 1996. And we found a tape uh, called Funk Masters of Wrestling, uh, the history of FMW into 1986, sorry, 1996, 1986, good God, no, in 1996, uh, which kind of highlights what's going on. And you get a lot of very interesting matches on this particular tape. What are your thoughts on this era, John, and what do you think this kind of all fits together in the FMW pantheon? See, this was the sort of... It was a stopgap sort of era between the sort of Onita era, era and the era that was going to come where they sort of tried to become more like WWE and they wanted to go for bigger storylines and sort of drop the grittier side that had made them so big. But you still got that sort of... You got a clash between storylines and violence because you had all the ECW stars coming in and the wing sort of rivalry. Yeah, I mean... um, 
I've got to say, I think the match quality improved no end. <laughs> oh, oh, definitely. The match quality improved, but they seemed to start losing fans because they came there for the sort of the darker side of wrestling almost. They were doing something fringe. Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, the uh, kind of working class kind of hardcore element that had been kind of their bread and butter, they, they did kind of move away from that. But having said that, the matches were way better. <laughs> oh, um, I, I totally agree. <laughs> I think that um, their dojo system had kind of started to pay off. You see a lot of new guys who come up who don't necessarily match the blood and guts mold. You've got guys like Tanaka who could wrestle really well before he started doing the dangerous stuff. So I think it's, it's a different take on what the FMW is about, isn't it? The FMW kind of philosophy. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned Tanaka because I remember I was watching this tape and seeing about... I just kept saying, oh, it's Tanaka again. And again. <laughs> With the ah, most this is ri- good. ridiculous mullet. I, yeah. It's, it's a thing of beauty. Um, you may, if you've listened to this podcast before, John, you may know that we talk about hair a lot. Hair is vitally important to the professional wrestling world. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's one of the things I first noticed from watching this tape. Um, so this is a highlight reel tape. There's loads of different matches, shortened matches. There's all sorts of different things on it, interesting little promos and stuff. We're going to give you a, a running highlight of them all and see what it's like. Now, the first match on this card that we that, I'm, that, that we see, the first full match, is Hayabusa and Koji Nakagawa. Now, Koji was everyone's favorite Bret Hart impersonator. I mean, he yeah. pulls his knees pads up in exactly the same way. He does everything. He's got the hair flip in the same way Bret does stuff. And then there's Hayabusa, arguably the best aerial wrestler of his generation, and that's saying something because his generation had some seriously good aerial wrestlers. Um, it's really good, and Koji wins, which is weird because he's like the new guy. So I was a bit thrown by that, but the fans seemed to like it. I think there's a Corican Hall, and it was a it was a nice little wrestling match to get things started. What did you think, John? Yeah. From a technical standpoint, it was great. I'll agree that the first thing I saw was like, I was like, oh, it's Japanese Bret Hart. <laughs> this is new. Because <laughs> I'm not sure if he's ever popped up in any of the matches I've sort of watched on YouTube and in the past. So I was kind of just like, huh, I don't remember you. And then he won. And I was just kind of like, wait, was Hayabusa jobbed out to Bret Hart? Uh, I wouldn't say jobbed out. More lost i think it wasn't yeah, just misjobbed I'm, just lost i'm just saying it for exaggeratory purposes but <laughs> that was just sort of my thought process i'm like did did fmw's biggest star just lose to someone i've never seen before yeah pretty oh. much <laughs> i was more thrown by what happened afterwards where there was just this random call out i couldn't understand i was just like is there subtitles for this uh hideki hosaka i bu- no not hideki hosaka i'll get this right it would be I had to make sure I get this right. Yeah, Hideki Hosaka. He was the one that called out um, uh, Hayabusa, wasn't he? And I think there was a bit yeah. of an ongoing feud through this tape of that. Because um, uh, Hosaka kind of feud, kind of sided with the wing guys. He was a resident heel and had been for a while. Um, and even though he was kind of... They kind of like favoured AB narratives in FMW. So even if you were a heel, you kind of sided with whoever the bad guys were. So there was people coming in, you kind of sided with them. Um, so, because he was a bad guy, he kind of signed a wing. Had a short period as a face, but not very long, certainly. Um, yeah. But yes. Um, the next match up, 
was Misato Tanaka and Kuroda. Oh, no, missed one out. The next matchup was Kanemura, he, Bad Boy Hido, Hideki Hosaka, and they wrestled Masato Tanaka, Nanjo Hayato, Tetsuhiro Kuroda in a barbed wire street fight tornado death match. <laughs> which is, you know, um, not quite double hell death because it was a single hell with this one because it was tornado rules. So they didn't need to tag or anything because obviously having a tag match in a no-rope barbed wire match is awfully difficult. Yeah, <laughs> You'll uh, get more injured just standing on the bloody apron. Like, <laughs> but I come have... on, tag me in. My arms are dead. <laughs> I have to say, this was really, really, really good. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think it was Kuroda who, or Hayato, actually, Hayato with the person. He was lethal in this match. He was <laughs> awesome. He was pulling out like lots of really tricky technical stuff, like. Uh, floating drip kicks and hurricane runners off of things he shouldn't be pulling hurricane runners off. This was not your standard blood and guts affair, really, but it was a lot of fun. What did you think of this one, John? This was probably my second favorite match on the tape. It was mad. There was like I'm not used to seeing that sort of technical level in a street fight. I, I, so I was. I was just watching. Just as you say that, I'm watching it, and he's just done a flying tiger drop over the barbed wire. Yeah, I'm sort of watching <laughs> these guys like throw themselves around or pull off like actual wrestling moves, and you're just there like, who says deathmatch wrestlers or street fight wrestlers can't wrestle? Watch yeah. this. Yes, yes, this is a good example of it, like being way better than it should be, definitely. Um, in this particular matchup, I think the heels go over. It's the FMW goes. It also has more false finishes than any other match I've ever seen. It is literally a 20-minute match with 10 minutes of false finishes. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing. I'm just like, oh, it's over. Wait, no, it's not. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. It was It was perfectly serviceable for what it was. Uh, and kind of told the story of where they're at. Now we move outdoors to a regular kind of match. Sort of. <laughs> Masato Tanaka and Tetsuya Kuroda with Koji Nakigawa. That's Koji, who was, uh, you know, rest, they, everyone's favorite impersonator. They wrestled Wing Kanemura, Bad Boy Hido, Hideki Hosaka in an exploding barwire double hell death match. Uh, this time we have landmines on the outside uh, to make things slightly more interesting. Not a street fight, so they're in regular wrestling gear, by the way, and the barbed wire is electrified. Just to pop things over the edge. <laughs> Uh, uh, this is a friggin' ludicrous wrestling match, to be honest with you. And again, defies the odds by being technically excellent in the worst and most conservative confines of a professional wrestling ring. Wing Kanemura actually tries wrestling moves in this one, and he succeeds greatly. Um, this was a lot of fun, and not for the people involved, clearly. <laughs> by the way, is there a whiter person on planet Earth than uh, Wing Kanemura? I do not think so, no. He I'm really... starting to think even Seamus has a rival. Yeah, I think he needed a, a good tan here, to be honest. Uh, but this was good. I like this. What are your thoughts on this one? This was quite this is, fun. This is my favourite match. I got three matches in, I was just like, I don't think I'm topping this. Because you've just got like <laughs> ten minutes of Nakagawa trying to get out of the barbed wire. <laughs> <laughs> like, I am... I made a joke on Twitter. I'm like, the Shane Miz feud cannot end without an expl like a no ropes exploding barbed wire death like, death match. <laughs> and it was just after watching this, and I'm just like, I want to see Shane get thrown into exploding barbed wire now. He's he's jumped off everything. Let's see him take it to the next level. <laughs> uh, but again, you were right. It was 
almost an actual wrestling match. Yes. I think I remember seeing Tanaka basically powerbomb someone on their head, and I was just kind of like, oh. Oh, it's Ganzo bomb heaven. It it really is. You know, this is... The the thund, the thunder fire pat the thunder thunder try again thunder fire power bomb that everybody uses as their finisher in FMW is a bit Ganzo bomb. You're supposed to land them on the top of their shoulders, um, and obviously that that relies heavily on them getting their head out of the way. Uh, when you've got a really thick neck, like say an FMW wrestler, getting your head out of the way is no easy task. Um, no. So oh. yeah. So there's some there's some stiff goings on. It's a bit rum, to be honest. Oh, <laughs> you were watching in the background like me. <laughs> yeah, funnily enough, it just got to got to a head drop. I was like, "Oh, Ooh, yes, it's, it's not pleasant." Um, but there was there was some good dramatic stuff in it. I love Bad Boy Hedo. Just generally, I love Bad Boy Hedo because he's awesome. Um, so watching him wrestle from a very young age was a, was a, a cool one in this one. But other than that, baby faces win. They get their heat back from the loss earlier on the on the heat on the tape. So. There you go. Uh, we'll move on to the next one because we've got a lot of matches to get through and not yeah. a lot of time to get it done in. So after that, Hayabusa challenges or talks to Tanaka. We're not really sure. Um, then for fans of Vince Russo, here is Russo's ideal match if he had the guts to book it, which he wouldn't. But to be fair to him, he'd never get it on US television anyway. This was a barbed wire bat on a pole, cash on a pole, double pole uh, street fight featuring... Uh, Hayabusa, Masato Tanaka, Koji Nakagawa, and Tetsuhiro Kuroda, and they wrestled Hisakota Oya, Super Leather, and the Headhunters. Because the Headhunters, at £450 each, are just the guys you want climbing poles. Anywho, John, what do you think of this? <laughs> Again, the, it was chaos. Yes. It's like, I'm pretty sure one of the Headhunters does a moonsault onto a table at one point, and I'm just kind of like, is that physically possible? Oh yeah, no, you don't, yeah, the Edunters were awesome. I don't understand why they only lasted a fortnight in WWE, but I think they would they had a reputation of being somewhat difficult to work with, I think was the phrase people used. <laughs> yeah, um, I I recognize them from somewhere and I was just kinda like Oh my god, that this is a weapons on a pole match and I instantly went to Vince Russo as well. And yeah. I was just kinda <laughs> like, Who's gonna get thrown off the top of one of these? It's gonna happen at some point. Yeah. Uh, but no, in, always innovative offense from the headhunters using a table for a balance point so you get your moonsault off nice and safely. Not for the person you're landing on, obviously, but for them, they were fine. Um, lots of uh, backdrop drivers, lots of climbing and uh, falling from high places. <laughs> As you can imagine, baseball bat shots with the barbed wire ahoy. It was messy spot fest. Uh, no one really knew what was going on. Till somebody it came down. It felt like cash. a precursor to like Money in the Bank, almost. Yeah, yeah. There was some good wrestling in it, you know. It, uh, um, Oya is always pretty good, to be honest. Um, yeah, there, there, there was some Andy stuff going on. It just took a long while to get round to it. <laughs> um, yeah. And it is just like eight guys in the ring. There's always going to be a bunch of stuff happening. And the headhunters were brilliant. I forgot how good the headhunters were. You know, I love those guys. Uh, had a good strong run in CMLL, good strong run in IWA, did loads of stuff in Puerto Rico, good in the southern United States independence, never cracked the big time, and I don't understand why. Possibly because they're making a decent living doing what they wanted to do elsewhere. But there you go. Um, yeah, 
fun match, really. Can Miles I just talk about the Leatherface impersonator for a second? That'd be your Leatherface, yes. Uh, <laughs> Rick Patterson. I, I think he got out of jail at this point. Yes, it was Rick Patterson. <laughs> is he still going? Because I'm pretty sure I saw him, saw him at a Freedom Show not too long ago in yeah. a similar sort of six-man bunkhouse death match. Yes, I, think, I believe he still is. No longer moonsaults, I don't think, but he's definitely still going. Uh, was announced dead on WWE.com about seven years ago. Uh, and then his uh, supposed widow rang them up and said, no, he's sat here in the front room. Um, I remember that part. <laughs> so, <laughs> contrary to popular opinion, not dead. Um, now, currently um, brawling his way to retirement, which is nice. I like that. I like. I, he only did three moves anyway. He was the ideal guy for that kind of thing. I was watching Jado in a mixed tag match this morning. And he, like, bumbled his way around the ring for 10 minutes to get a decent match out of it. Didn't do anything. Is this, is this the one from Don Tarku? Yeah, he just like, hit somebody with a, uh, a cane and then blundered around, took a couple of bumps, and that was your lot. That's all Jado needs to do these days because he's had 30 years in this business. That's all he needs to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yes, that was fun. That's really all that was. Speaking of pro wrestling Don Tarku, guy oh, I watched this morning, take a pinfall, some... 23 years after this particular card was on uh, was done uh, was Takamichi Noku, who defeated Ricky Fuji for the FW, FMW Independent Junior Heavyweight Tag Team. Uh, sorry, Junior <laughs> FMW Independent Junior Heavyweight Championship in a really good match because Ricky Fuji could go and so could Takamichi Noku. Taku, when he's 20, doesn't he, he doesn't look much different now, does he? <laughs> he doesn't age. No, he's like, we talk about Jushin Liger being like, you know, uh, ageless and timeless, but by gum, he definitely doesn't age. And this was they were a lot of fun for a regular street, regular street fight. Uh, sorry, regular match. You forget there was some good technical wrestling. Ricky Fuji's a heat machine as well. He really did know what he was doing as a singles wrestler, so that was well worth watching. Um, yeah, anything you'd like to say, John? I was slightly sad, and this seemed to be one of the shorter matches on the sort of tape. I was really enjoying it. Yeah, it it was. I think it's possibly because oh, FMW just do good and guts, and that's really all they put on it. Um, but I actually like this match. I mean, it wasn't as technically great as because Ricky Fuji was good, but he was kind of in the wrong era. He was like a lot of people who were born in the wrong era. If Ricky Fuji had reached twenty five ten years earlier, he would have been considered one of the greatest junior heavyweights of all time. Um, oh, definitely. But because he grew up in the era, he, he came to fruition in the era of Super Delphin and Great, Great Sasuke and Liger and Ultimo Dragon and all of these people who were like literally legends within their field, he kind of got forgot about. You know, and I, I, I put Tacker in that level. Like, like Tacker is one of the greatest junior heavyweights that ever lived, and he came along at the right time. Um, and Ricky Fuji kind of got left behind because of that, to be honest. But there you go. Uh, next up after that was the Headhunters versus Hideki Hosaki and Hido. They were defending their uh, the Headhunters were defending their FMW Brass Knuckles Tag Championships, and it ended with a wonderful Power and Glory move. I loved Power and Glory's finisher, and the Headhunters used it to great effect in this matchup. Actually, it wasn't the finish, but it was one of the moves. It was great to see double team moves like that, especially from two guys who were like combined weight of nine hundred pounds. But this was a fun match to watch, and it showed you how good the headhunters were as a tag team. Your thoughts, John? I'm pretty much in agreement with you. I was sort of in awe at what the headhunters could do. I was just sat back enjoying the match, really. It's another one of those where you sort of forget sort of how long it runs, and you're just absorbed by it. 
Yeah, it it did not drag in any stretch or form. And you know, for two guys with 450 pounds, they could go 20 minutes and not blow up. So that was really impressive. Definitely. Because even you, when even when you're in a tag match, you're not just stood on the apron, are you? No, the the headhunters really do deserve more than they got, don't they? They really do. <laughs> Justice for the headhunters. Justice for the headhunters. Yes, I feel I feel they are they are not. They are not loved the way they should be loved. Um, anywho, yes. Uh, we are kind of plowing through this. I didn't realize we can slow down now. We've got two main events to talk about. We'll, we'll take this a bit slower. <laughs> um, so next up was the FMW six-man street fight title match. Masato Tanaka and Koji Nakagawa, as well as Tetsuhiro Kuroda, were against Terry Funk, The Gladiator, and Horace Boulder, for the six-man championships. I don't think they ever had belts for the six-man championships. I think they just had wrestling. <laughs> but it's interesting at this particular point, Terry Funk come back, comes back to the fold of FMW, uh, which is interesting for a start because, you know, he really was an expensive item when he came back two years before. Um, but they're desperate now. <laughs> and Terry's price has clearly come down, so he's more affordable. Um, you've got the Gladiator, Mike Awesome, and by 96, I think had probably just started making appearances for uh, ECW and was st- starting to make hay in North America, but it still made his name in FMW. Horace Boulder has about a two years left in FMW before he goes off to WCW, but he's still like a solid worker and he's just the right guy for this environment. Um, and to be honest, he's a better worker than his uncle. Uh, and then on the face side, you've got Koji, who's gone from being this opening match new guy we'd never seen before to being in the main event on a regular basis. You've got Tetsuya Kuroda, who's a perfectly serviceable wrestler. He's a really good, fun wrestler to watch. And Masato Tanaka, who is putting in... He's the money man of this particular highlight tape. We're talking about one month or maybe two months in 1996, and he's everywhere, and he's doing really, really good stuff. What's your thoughts on this, John? This was where I started seeing my cars and throw tables at people, and I loved it. Which he's just done on the background. <laughs> like every time he's in a match, he throws a table at someone, or he hits someone with a table without setting it up. And I'm just kind of like, why don't more people do that? Yeah, I mean, it's like I mean, I suppose the Japanese tables obviously are smaller, which doesn't help. Um, but yeah, it it's it's good stuff. I think. I think you're right. I think. Um... It does need to. It does need to be done more often. <laughs> I also sort of kept cracking up whenever I heard like Terry Funk swearing at someone or insulting someone or just trying to intimidate people. Because <laughs> I'm just kind of like, ah, it didn't sound intimidating to me. And then he'd hit someone with a chair, and I'd be like, okay, I get it, I get it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kindly, Uncle Terry. Is that your issue with it? Oh, not at all. I think, I think every street fight needs the sort of kind wrestler, and but he didn't really fit that role because he was still beating people up on a heel team. <laughs> Come here, you son of a bitch! Oh, uh, that you that to bastard! Me, Sorry, that to me is like Maccabee's laugh after he does the turnbuckle punches. It's something I'll always hear and I'll always laugh at because I'm just sort of like <laughs> that is adorable. <laughs> I don't think anyone's called Maccabee adorable before. Uh, 
to be fair, Terry Funk's probably going to chase me with a chair now. He'll <laughs> just be like, it's not so adorable now. <laughs> All right, then. We'll move on to the next match. But it kind of sets the top match kind of sets the tone for where the rest of the tape's going. You know who the big guys are going to be in the, in the coming months, certainly. And you also have to bear in mind, FMW had no television. These little interim tapes between the big events is how they told their stories to the wider audience. You know, this was their big kind of distribution point. And it's kind of hard to kind of imagine how big VHS was for FMW and um, digital disc as well. You know, uh, it wasn't DVD back then. It was Laserdisc, but they had a Laserdisc distribution deal. Now, I've talked to a few FMW experts who think it isn't quite the thing that perhaps people think it is. But I do think it helped certainly a lot with production because they put money when they got like the development deal from, from the Laserdisc company. They put money into production. It looks crisp. It doesn't look out of place, like as a production is concerned now. You know, New Japan don't do much different to this for their live shows. They've got better cameras, but the actual coverage, you've still got like three cameras set, three people on commentary. It's about the same, isn't it, really? Yeah, the presentation for this was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I got a little giggle out of the sort of word art look and in-between graphics, but that's a product of the time. And yeah, it did just kind of look like classic New Japan to me. I was sort of just like, huh, I wonder if they use the same production layout and you've just told me it is. Yeah, I mean, they, they aren't as good as the All Japan Women stuff for the same period, but All Japan Women had been around for 20 years longer, had more money, knew that they had to invest in crisp um, television, state-of-the-art TV because they had state-of-the-art wrestling. It's a bit like Texas in the 80s. I kind of, sorry, I get lost on TV production sometimes and I kind of, because I kind of enjoy it. Because like, if you look at the best TV production in wrestling, Dallas in 86 to 89 was about the best TV production in wrestling for a long while. Even though they were at the Sportatorium and it looked like shit. But, um, you know, they had the best cameras, they had the best layout, they had the best producers. AJW Women, All Japan Women's Wrestling from really from 78 up until their close was state of the art they had five presenters doing the um introduction on doing the commentary they had a main they had a hard cam they had a main reverse hard cam they had three cameras on the floor sometimes they had a boom camera long before wwe did so you know i think they're not up to that standard but then few wrestling companies were at the time so yeah i think this stands up it stood up well at the time the only thing i think there's maybe problematic on this tape which i hadn't seen on fmw tapes before it's a bit dark certain places haven't got full lighting rigs and if they're only using like the house lights it does make it a little bit difficult to see what's going on but other than that it was really good to watch yeah that's why i was always thankful for the outdoor shows because i'm like oh i can see everything now <laughs> right then we'll move on to the next matchup which was hayabusa versus hitsukisoti oya which was all right really it was okay um it was kind of more of a straight-up wrestling match. It was a lot more like a main event-style straight-up wrestling match. Oya is kind of like slow-burning his way through this match and, you know, doing a lot of stalling, making sure he had all the advantages and then being explosive when he was on top and Hayabusa coming out with uh, interesting counters to that and trying to work some aerial stuff into this slow, methodical match that Oya wanted to wrestle. What are your thoughts on this one, John? This was... From a sort of just pure wrestling point, this was probably the best match on the card, sort yes. of. Discounting I'm... the sort of amazing feats of athleticism you got from the headhunters. Yeah, I would say that. It was probably the most main eventy main event match 
in the, of that era. The thing that if you were going to take one match from this particular tape and stick it on another company's card, this is the one you stick on an old Japan card. You know, it's that kind of. I saw a lot. I mean, I see a lot of it in kind of what you see now with. I'm trying to think of Naito. He wrestles a bit like Oya does, like that slow, methodical, take your own pace, piss people off kind of offense. See, I got Tai Chi vibes, but. I see where you're coming from with that, yeah. No, I see where you're going. Naito tends to be faster. Tai Chi's just like, right, uh, I don't feel like wrestling. I'm going to go outside now. Yep. <laughs> he oh, is... I love Tai Chi. Oh, I despise Tai Chi, but there you go. <laughs> 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 yeah. I do like the fact that um, the only reason, one of the main reasons why Zack Sabre Jr. wanted to be in Suzuki and Good was so he didn't have to wrestle Tai Chi. <laughs> And I mean, he, it's as good a reason as any, they've I buried, guess. They've buried the hatchet now, and now they tag together. But yeah, he used to despise him. <laughs> I think it's because Tai Chi has improved, like, so much over, like, the past couple of years. He sort of made the heavyweight jump and now realizes, oh, yeah. maybe I do actually have to wrestle. Can't get by on telling a story and doing it that way, because you thought he would do. But it's not the way it works. You have to actually put some effort in. <laughs> so, anywho... Right then, next matchup um, is Shark to Shore uh, versus Ray. I'm going to try and find it now. Where is it? Shark to Shakur, and I've gone too far. Hang on a sec. I'm just looking at this to make sure I got the right one. Ah, there you go. They had a lot of clips for the sort of women's matches, didn't they? It's because they didn't have as many matches, so they're trying to fill in as much backstory as they could. Because Bad Nurse Nakamura turned on um, Mad Dog Incorporated at that particular point. So, <laughs> it's complicated. Okay. <laughs> so, you, you've got this street fight between Shark Tikishaw and Ray, who was a young rookie who was one of Megumi Kudo's um, uh, protégés. And Ray is, like, essentially the girlest of girls next door. And Shark Tikishaw is essentially a thug with who brandishes a um sickle and yeah i yeah. was which was be- i was so happy to see a sickle <laughs> bequeathed to her by mr pogo for her efforts in hardcore wrestling and essentially it's shark trying to kill ray for 10 minutes um, yeah that's a, is this the one where there's the sort of like corner spot for about two minutes where she's just slowly grinding it down so she can eventually just press the sickle into her head. Yes, basically. It is a bit grim. Oh, baseball, uh, sorry, uh, kendo stick wrapped in barbed wire, uh, the other toy to play with. Uh, Ray does not have a good time in this match, as you'd imagine, because she's wrestling short to start with. Um, and, of course, it's topped off by the fact it's being refereed by the comedy uh, Michinoka Pro referee. The jolly big dude. Yeah, I, I, I laughed at him so much because he's not like, "This is a brutal match," but there's a clown refereeing. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like there's something to be said about juxtaposition here. Yes, there is. There is. There is a bit of existential crisis going on with this match that perhaps the fans aren't getting, but they're into it. And it was Kurikan Hall, and it shows you how strong the women were at Kurikan Hall. This was the main event without Megumi Kudo, without Combat Toyota, who had also retired by this point. You know, you can tell that this is really impressive. This is gaining a lot of fans for FMW. Uh, no one's on fire yet. Um, and it is uh, awfully good. 
wrestling match for the, conf- for the confines it's in. Uh, Ray is a gamer as well. She takes a pile driver onto a stack of chairs for the finish. Um, she was pretty good, and she was a good wrestler. Um, and she also kicked out of that stack of chairs pile driver. So, you know, she was. they were trying to get her over as the next Megumi Kudo, I guess, was really what they were after. And Megumi was at ringside cheering her on. Um, though, obviously, it's Shark Tiki Sir, and you don't beat Shark in a street fight unless you bring something really big like a tank with you. I was getting serious IWA Japan vibes from this sort of match because they had a women's division that tended to be crazy as well. And I was just sort of like, I can think of most male wrestlers who will not take the spots they are taking right now. This is insane. I think a lot of it was to do with their rivalry with AJW. They, They knew they couldn't keep up with their technical chops. Like, you know, if you've got Minami Toyota and Akira Hakuto on your roster, people are not going to catch up with you just aren't um and megumi kudo was on their par but no one else in wrestling was so i mean they realized they couldn't get through on technical stuff so they tried to get through on different other things and they used their environment and thankfully for them if combat toyota and megumi kudo had not said no we're not doing barbed wire none of this would have happened but they set the standard and they did it they were the first ones to do barbed wire matches they were first ones to do street fights uh of serious like hardcore nature um and then the rookies followed through you know, uh, Kiro, Kiro Yonayama, who is a big attraction in Joshi Wrestling these days, grew up in the FMW environment. That's where she trained. So did uh, Emi Sakura, who's uh, a key trainer for Pro Wrestling Eve. You know, they started in the FMW dojo uh, just towards the end of FMW. But the women's division was one of the biggest things in FMW. Megumi Kudo is considered one of the top three or four wrestlers who ever lived. Um, not just women, ever. You know, I think she gets undersold. I mean, in that conversation, like, who's the greatest wrestler of all time, you're always going to get, like, Minami Toyota, Akira Okuto, and Aja Kong in there, but you should have Megumi Kudo in there as well. I definitely agree. No, Megumi Kudo was one of the people I sort of first saw from FMW's women division, and I I was sold. I genuinely was shocked at sort of how talented someone from what is considered a trash promotion could be. Well, she was AJW trained, so that kind of gave her a bit of a head start. Like, she came from the best dojo. She came from the second greatest dojo year AJW's dojo ever had. You know, her classmates at the AJW dojo were uh, Bison Kimura, Aja Kong, Combat Toyota. Um, so, you know, she was she was in good company to start with. Um and then, you know, unfortunately for her, got cut from AJW because they just had too many good wrestlers and she wasn't developing fast enough. But she got there oh. in the end, by God. I didn't know that, actually. So Did you not know that? No. Does I, that, does yeah, that... I thought she came from the FMW side, side no. of things. I'll explain this before. We've talked to people before on the Beginner's Eye Guide, but it's worth explaining again. Uh, Combat Toyota and Megumi Kudo were both AJW wrestlers. Um, and Combat, after about a year of being in Aja Kong's shadow realized that she wasn't going to get anywhere because when you've got Ball Nakano and you've got Aja Kong, do you need any more monster heels with Bison Kimura waiting in the wings? Probably not. Um, so she retired on the grounds that, well, she went to the, she went to work in Indies because she probably wasn't going to get any bookings that she wanted. Um, and then um, Megumi Kudo um, was dropped in 1988 because she wasn't developing fast enough. AJW told her she was not good enough. Ooh. That AJW, I bet they regret that one. 
Well, she came back and main evented for them and for the AG and for the WWA Women's Championship against Aja Kong in 1986. And also, she headlined the biggest mixed gender wrestling card of all time up until that point, 14,000 at Yokohama Arena for her retirement show in 1997. Um, so that tells you how good she actually was. And the only card that actually beat that for a headline by women on a mixed gender show, WrestleMania 35 this year. That t- that record stood for 22 years. Bloody hell. So there you go. She was that good. All right, then. Uh, in fact, the next match that you see is also Megumi Kudo. It featured Megumi Kudo, Kiori Nakayama, and they wrestled Krushin Madamori and Miss Mongol uh, in a fun little match that kind of put everything together for them. Uh, it was it was all right. It was kind of like matching up a rookie with a veteran to see how they get on, um, and it was kind of cool. What did you think of this one? Yeah, pretty much the same as you. I was sort of just like, I don't really. I recognised uh, Megumi Kudo, but I didn't recognise the other sort of the other lady in the match whose name you just said, and I cannot remember. Kiori Naki, sorry, uh, Miss Mongol, and yeah, Kiori Nakiyama. I was kind of just like, oh, this is really fun. It's just a nice little. It was just a nice little match, sort of after someone being cut up with a sickle. <laughs> yeah, straight wrestling match next time. Let's have a nice wrestling match. Yes, which is true. It did. Um, the next match after that was actually a bit of a horrifying match as Nakayama went into a street fight uh, with Megumi Kudo, and they took on Shark Tikisura and Miss Mongol. And unfortunately for Nakayama, she got sickled and blooded out through that matchup, which was a bit hardcore for her. Yeah, at that moment, I was kind of just like, that's a woman bleeding. Oh. That was that's... a bit grim. <laughs> See, that, that, we're the opposite there, because I was just like, well, this just got exciting. <laughs> I was just saying, it was, of the grim things on this particular card, it was one of the grimmer things. I'm not saying it's the grimmest thing, but, you know, slicing and dicey rookies is pretty much kind of par for the course with this company. Um, and it, it was probably, you know, uh, a bit grim because it was her probably her first street fight and it was probably something she wasn't quite ready for because uh, it's going to be fairly intense. But as you see in the highlight package afterwards, they get back together and team together and uh, have a long run of success. I'm not sure how you're ever ready to take a sickle to the face. I don't think so either. I think it's one of those things that, you know, it seems like a good idea when they do it in the uh, finish room. <laughs> but then again, in the it, finish room, you're not getting a sharp blade through your forehead, are you? No, it's like I can always, I can always understand barbed wire. I can understand light tubes. I can understand chairs and things like that. But the sickle one is the sort of... It's almost like uh, Toshiyuki Sakuda's sort of itchy the killer needles. I'm just kind of like... How do you agree to take these things? Yeah. Like, that's that's one thing I'm going to have to study at some point, just how, like, you psych yourself up to take the spots that you take in, like, death matches and street fights, because it, it must take some level of preparation. Yeah, it must do, really. Some thought process. And next up, we had Kiori Nakayama and Megumi Kudo. They wrestled Chuck Tikisho and Miss Mongol in a regular wrestling match in Kurikan Hall, and there were signs everywhere for all of them. And yes, it was pretty good. It's a straight up wrestling match, which kind of descended into a brawl because they all kind of descended into a brawl. But this was a lot of fun. FMW by this point was being headlined by women. They were having all women shows. 
as well as having men's shows on the same tour. So they weren't just doing intergender stuff. FMW women were able to look after themselves. It was uh, quite the quite the thing, really. Kind of like something FMWWE did like 10 years later, well, 20 years later. Yeah, they were the precursor for this sort of thing, yeah. almost. They're really the only successful mixed gender company that's been in uh, Japanese wrestling until like intergender wrestling became a more regular thing. But um, DDT is a mixed gender company now in the intergender sense, whereas most other places have either been men or women, but not both. Um, I was going to say DDT is the only place I can think of that has like mixed genders. Yeah, independents do all the time. Um, but yeah, and Gaia do usually have a couple of guys matches on to break things up a bit, but that's about it really. So it is kind of a unique situation that FMW were in. And then we get to the final card of this particular, or the final match of this particular show, which was again in Kurikan Hall, and it was Hayabusa and Masato Tanaka taking on Terry Funk and the Gladiator in a street fight at K-Hall. Terry Funk at K-Hall. What can possibly go wrong, John? A lot, to be honest. <laughs> what did you think of this last match? Because I guess it's kind of like, on the last match, you're looking for something special. Even if it's just a highlight pay-per-view, highlights or a video, you want something to really send the fans home happy on. What were your thoughts on this? And what do you think they were trying to get across with this particular match? Can I have three favorite matches? Of course you can. Like, I, I, just, I just remembered how good this one was. Because <laughs> you, <had the laughs> you had the East-West sign, which is which was probably the first for the sort of two ECW guys. You had, again, Mike Awesome throwing tables. I will never get enough of Mike Awesome throwing tables. <laughs> and, yeah, this this was probably the sort of, like, the last sort of Terry Funk match. And this Terry Funk match probably set up what was probably one of the better sort of feuds of the ECW era, which was like um, Masato Tanaka and Mike Awesome, because they had a war sort of was it after this or was it during this it was after this um it was uh it, excuse me a second Some, someone's trying to ring me that's all right um it was after this and um it was the ecw one was i'm trying to think now uh ecw was um yeah it did come after this the there was there was the there was ECW um, stuff going on around this, and there was ECW stuff going on um, after this with both Tanaka and with uh, Mike Awesome. So yeah, it was it was. Um, sorry, I've got completely lost train of thought because that phone call. <laughs> I'll edit this bit out. But yeah, so there was stuff going on at the time, around at the time. Um, but I think as well, this kind of set up the main event for the next uh, anniversary show the following year because that was Pogo and Funk versus Hayabusa and Tanaka at Kawasaki Baseball Stadium, which is probably the last big drawing show they had as a main event. So this match is kind of important, and it does rollick along, doesn't it? Yeah, it it's quite a long one. I was sort of looking at the sort of runtime for the tape, and I'm just like, oh... There is a fair bit left for this last match. It must be a big one. And I was quite shocked by sort of like how much time it was given. Yeah, it was, but it was like the main event, Corican Hall. So I suppose it was kind of worthwhile, really. It um, didn't drag either. That's that's the other thing. Like sometimes when you get long main events, you just kind of like, will will this end already? I'm, yeah. I get what you're going for, but I'm I'm starting to lose it. 
But no, for this one, I I was fully invested. And again, it might be because Terry Funk kept shouting obscenities (laughs) at people. All right, then. What are your thoughts as you close close out this particular show? What are your thoughts on the show? And what are your thoughts on FMW in 1996? Did they do well without Onita? I'd, I'd say yes, they did. Um, like for this for this year specifically, they they were still drawing quite nice sized crowds. The women's division was flourishing. They had Terry Funk coming in to issue this sort of massive brand warfare storyline. You were getting, you had the Gladiator still. You had all sorts of just little moments throughout this sort of show sort of highlighted just how good some of the people in the FMW sort of roster were. You had Tanaka stealing the show on a daily basis. You had Hayabusa stealing the show. You had the Headhunters. There was, again, the whole women's division just... it. This was kind of the best it got when Onita wasn't in control. Yeah, I think so as well. There was a lot of good stuff going on with this particular card, specifically in the women's division, but certainly in the main event. It gave Tanaka and it gave Hayabusa serious room to breathe and develop as main eventers, which is what they needed to do. Because um, Onita was massive on Hayabusa at the, like during his sort of booking era, but he was rarely given like a chance to sort of stop. No, it's... um, Yeah, it was... I think it was interesting to show how they built somebody up. But I think as well, I mean, obviously they built up Hayabusa with his win over Terry Funk at the anniversary show. Sorry, not win over uh, with, well, no, his loss to Anita at the anniversary show, but done it in such a dramatic fashion. So this kind of really helped him cement him as the future star. But he still lost to Anita, didn't he? And I wonder if that hurt him in the long run. I guess it always gave him something to prove. Yes, Which is personally. always kind of a good thing if you're building sort of like your biggest baby face. Yeah. I suppose you're right, really. I hadn't thought of it like that. Well, anyway, that covers our Funk Masters of Wrestling episode for the Beginner's Guide to Professional Wrestling. I'd like to thank my guest for today, uh, Mr. John Dinsdale. Would you like to tell us where we can find you on your social media? Uh, for the most part, you'll just see me lurking on Twitter under John Deathman. I am that edgy. <laughs> <laughs> you have kind of like you know taken this um persona on for yourself uh it's a nickname i've had for years that has slowly sort of devolved from fighting games into death matches so it's it's a nice name to carry on to be honest fair enough uh, you can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. You can find the show Troopany Show on Twitter. You can find Steel Chair Magazine at Steel Chair Mag, uh, which we both write for and I edit for. You can find uh, the show on Facebook uh, at The Troopany Show on Facebook and The Troopany Show on Patreon, where you can keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone. Please follow our partners, powerslam.tv, where you can use our promo code MULLETWATCH. And by God, there were some fine mullets in this episode of The Beginner's Guide to Professional Wrestling. <laughs> Uh, you can follow them and get a free month when you uh, subscribe for a year. Thank you very much for listening today. We will be back next week. Take care. Bye. Bye.